Hello, everyone. Welcome to Professor Jamerson's podcast. This is Sociological Theory, Fall 2020, Week 12. This week we are talking about indigenous theories, and um, this is a tricky subject for us in many ways because, A, we are really um, stepping outside the framework of what we call Western epistemology. Uh, Thus far, all of the theories we've looked at have been sort of written by Europeans coming out of um, a European frameworks of, of what legitimate knowledge is and how legitimate knowledge is constructed and produced. Of course, Foucault criticizes this whole process and Du Bois is coming out at it, um, as, as is de Beauvoir, very much from the perspective of outsiders, but still, but still very much contained epistemologically speaking from, from the standpoint of, of, of what knowledge is and how it's made. Um, both Du Bois and de Beauvoir are, are located within that framework as well, especially when you think about where their theories come from, um, you know, their inspirations, these sorts of things. And so, and so this week we're getting outside of that epistemological box and talking about indigenous theory. And, and a second part of what makes this such a tricky subject for us is that when we talk about, you know, who are indigenous peoples, indigenous groups, indigenous nations? Um, is it possible to talk about a unifying theory that they all, that all of these groups share? Um, that in itself is, is um, almost an impossible task to sort of comprehend because when we think of indigenous peoples, um, we're talking about um, um, groups and nations that, that have uh, very different societies, very different cultural formations, very different languages, histories, um, and each of these societies, in, in effect, has its own epistemological framework for how knowledge is produced, what constitutes reality, how social interaction should be maintained, norms, uh, values, all, all of these things. Um, the, the incredible amount of diversity we see in, in terms of culture and, and epistemological frameworks that exist between and amongst indigenous peoples um, is 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 incredible and, and it's a reflection of the ways indigenous peoples have have managed to live in specific environments for thousands and, and hundreds of years. Um, and it comes from an intimate knowledge and relationship with these areas. And this is a big part. Um, uh, and one thing that all indigenous theories sort of have in, in kind and all indigenous cosmologies um, have similarities in that sense. And so for this week, right, we're going to tackle both of these issues um, with the first reading, especially this notion of a peoplehood matrix, right? What are these common threads when we look at all indigenous groups? For example, in the United States, we've got five, over 500 federally recognized tribes, federally recognized tribes, and many more hundreds that are not federally recognized. We can talk about each of these tribal groups having their own specific worldviews, own specific cultures, languages, right? Like a society's into and, and of themselves. And yet there are these similarities connecting them. And that's, and that's one thing that um, Holm and Pearson and his colleagues here um, propose for us in terms of this peoplehood matrix. And, and on the other hand, how can we look at the indigenous experience, especially in the past 500 years and talk about it without understanding the effects of colonialism and imperialism and and the effects really of modernity and modern society on indigenous peoples 
um, their lands and their lives. This is, of course, taken up in detail here by Linda Tui Smith in her chapter from Decolonizing Methodologies. And it's really important, um, you know, to, to think about social theory from this outside perspective. And, and, and what we're going to talk about this week is both is both an alternate way for doing theory, for, for making theory, for considering theory, and then and also one of the things that indigenous theory does and Linda does quite well here is is use that use that sort of basis to critique the theory coming out of the West, i.e. to critique all of the theories that we have talked about so far in this class. And so these are these are some of the topics that we'll be addressing this week. I will start um, just by saying I want us to consider these readings as like two sides of the same coin, right? Um, you know, Linda Smith obviously taking, you know, this sort of a critical aspect. Her her paper is much more, her, her chapter is much more geared towards a critique of modernity through the eyes of indigenous peoples. Um, whereas Holm are, are, are thinking about more of an academic solution to to this notion of American Indian studies as a tributary, but but taking their proposal and, and suggesting that we could think about this as, as a political tool as well, as a tool that can assert indigenous, specifically Native American sovereignty in, in issues where it is contested in the courts, um, in local communities, at, at the state, federal, and local level um, in the United States. So, and so once again, we're going to see sort of a, um, as we've been going through the theories here in the, se in the second half of this course, um, we're going to see sort of a central theme, a central mission um, with the theoretical topic this week, indigeneity and, and, um, and, and indigenous identity and experiences and relationships with the land and the environment. Um, a sort of central mission with that is this decolonizing mission um, that Linda Smith is so eloquent at, at framing here in this chapter. And then, and then a third is, is, is the ways indigenous theory can be used to critique um, the development of Western theory, um, and and really one of the one of the main things that that we've been missing so far, and this is another right going beyond the central mission, right? One of the main themes that's been missing in this class and in 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 the theories that we've talked about so far is is the effect of modernity on the natural environment, on on the the diversity of life forms on the planet Earth, on the amount of resources we have available to us. On how they're distributed equitably and how we fight over these resources. Um, this is something that indigenous theory is, is finally tuned into, and and so that taking this beyond the central mission of, you know, decolonizing the lives of indigenous people, right? What what is this? I mean, when we talk about indigenous theory, we're talking about a conservation-based theory, and and when we talk about environmental conservation, indigenous people, like being able to live in one place without depleting that one place's resources over a period of thousands of years or hundreds of years or, or however long, um, these are, these are the ultimate stories in conservation. Um, there's much, you know, that Western thought can gain from considering, um, indigenous epistemologies. And so beyond the central mission of decolonizing the lives of indigenous people, what can indigenous thought in theory, um, contribute to um, our knowledge of how to take care of our planet, our knowledge of how to take care of ourselves, right? How to achieve balance in our lives, these sorts of things. So I'm going to start um, by getting into the home reading and then move to Linda Smith. But 
just to be just to be clear, right? We, it, it, there's no particular order, right, that we can go with these readings. So here in the reading by Holm and Al, Holm, Pearson, and Chavis. I'll, I'll start. I'll start saying Holm, Pearson, and Chavis. I'll start with this discussion of the idea of paradigm, and, and throughout this class, we've been using the word perspective to denote the different sort of theoretical traditions that we've been covering in this class. We can also think of these different theoretical traditions as paradigms, as as what what um you know they talk about here is an example that serves as a model or pattern to explain the idea that science possesses core assumptions, and this is something that we have talked about, right? Each of these theoretical um, paradigms that we've talked about in class contains these core assumptions, and that is that is one part, right? The core assumption is assumed to be true, and then all other interpretations of the world are measured sort of around and how they relate to this core assumption. This is, this is how paradigms work, and we've been going through various theoretical paradigms coming out of Western epistemological traditions, and and we jump right from here. This and the example that um, Holm uses is Darwin, and um, you know Darwin has become paradigmatic in in the biological sciences. For example, the social and behavioral sciences have also, however, we've talked about social Darwinism in this course, have embraced the Darwinian paradigm and developed theories that underpin the notion that humans have naturally progressed through time. It is assumed that economies, governments, cultures, philosophies, technologies, and social relationships have evolved from the simple to the complex in reaction to various stimuli or as a result of man's innate curiosity. And so out of and, and th this view of a human social progression, right, is only legible using a Darwinian paradigm, right? The, the, the framework of knowledge that we use to describe or that, we, that, we, that we're applying to the phenomena becomes sort of this measurement and therefore the core assumption colors our interpretation of it. But if we're not thinking from this Western paradigm, if we're not thinking from a Darwinian paradigm, then, then an observation of a society that grows larger and perhaps more predatory over time, as in the case with European colonial societies, may take on a very different interpretation, may take on a very different light. And that's what um, that's what we're in the business of, of critiquing here this week. And so the next section in our, in our uh, journal article by Tom Holm, American Indian Studies is a tributary, really discusses the fact that American Indian Studies um, as of, I think, 2001, it's much more of a, a developed discipline at this point in the academy, partially as a result of articles like this. Um, but at the time, American Indian Studies was considered not like its own thing. It was, uh, you'd have like people who specialize in American Indian literature and English departments, for example. You'd have people, anthropologists who specialize in certain Native American groups. You would have... Um, you know, law professors looking at law and policy and treaty history, historians, ethno history, business economics, right? There's a list here, here on page uh, eight. Um, but it hasn't really been its own thing. And this is what something that, that this is a development that Linda Smith may call kind of an intellectual kind of imperialism, a form of permanent marginalization for American Indian people within the academy, within the major uh, driver of knowledge production in society 
And, and then he goes on to say, and this is, however, we can look at this as one of the strengths of American Indian studies is a depth and richness of theoretical constructs developed within the span of the last 30 years. And he goes on to list, right, all of these different theories in the next like page or so, all of these different theories that have developed out of studying and research into American Indian peoples and observations and data collection and ethnographies, which is like observations and interviews. Um, in addition to the theoretical frameworks posed through ethnography, American Indian studies is well grounded in such ideas as class, class conflict theory or, or Marxism, critical legal theory, critical race theory, economic determinist, ethnohistory, and mercantilist economic colonial theory. We have uh, some more meso-level theories here. Helen Roundtree's Virginia colonial model, right? And, and just on and on with these various theories that, that have tried to explain the American Indian experience. All of them are coming from, um, as is pointed out here, a Western perspective, um, including deficit theories, still more, right? We move from you know, uh, colonial theories and historical theories to economic theories to psychological theories, all here on page nine. We know it's not till page 10 that we get to Vine Deloria Jr., the first indigenous thinker and first indigenous theorist mentioned here on this list, speaking to what Linda Smith is referring to here um, in her chapter, who are uh, Vine Deloria who wrote a book called Custer Died for Your Sins. It's on the Canvas site under files if you want to check it out, but we're not reading it for this class. Um, he identifies French rationalist theory, which is um, a major um, driver of the Enlightenment more generally, as postulated by Rene Descartes. I think, therefore, I am guy. He's that guy. Um, as the principal theoretical foundation for U.S. termination and relocation policies, if you don't know U.S. termination policies, um, were basically when the U.S. government in the 1950s decided that American Indian tribes had been fully assimilated into American Indian society and therefore were no longer, no, did no longer need or were deserving or um, would benefit in any way, shape, or form from having any tribal identification. And so um, tribes were literally just like erased from from census records and, and, and um, it was like a it was like a kind of like social death, a kind of uh, um, political death in many ways for Native American tribes. Um, here's Vine Delore, the only indigenous theorist mentioned here, like calling out enlightenment theory, which, um, you know, of course, all the other theorists we've looked at, you know, this is this is where our modern age comes from, where the ideas of modernity come from. He's the only one here like calling it out and questioning it. Um, so this is an overview, as Holmes says, of of you know all of these different these different theoretical traditions and perspectives that have utilized American Indian knowledge and heritage and history and experience and identity towards coming up with some some idea explanation for the way the world works, and yet it's uh, and the, and the people themselves, the communities themselves. Their values, what they stand for, never take front stage, are always marginalized, right? Always sort of part of this, part of that, never, never at in the middle. Um, and this is a problem, he says. American Indian Studies is considered at most a tributary 
of several different mainstream, right? Tributary, not the mainstream of, of tributary of several different mainstream academic studies. American Indian studies is considered a tributary field of anthropology, ethnology, history, political science, and sociology precisely because it is a diverse interdisciplinary field of study, much like the people, right, that it concerns, right? American Indian studies, it's interdisciplinary and diverse because we're talking about thousands of completely different cultures and, and peoples and languages and histories. What this leads to in, in an academy that is set up according to, right, Western discursive standards, according to Western bureaucratic norms that privileges um, ideas of modernity as being the, the, the highest and most evolved form of humanity. What this all leads to is American Indian studies uh, being epistemologically marginalized within the academy and therefore within the, the primary system of knowledge production we have in modern society. I'm trying to link up here, you know, what Holm is discussing here with, with the context that Linda provides in her chapter. But I want to start with peoplehood because I want to put people first. Not, I don't want to like just run into a critique of Western society. We need to understand a little bit more about indigenous identity and peoplehood before we get into that. As he says here, this the 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 label of of being a tributary is a stigma for American Indian studies, much like American Indian people themselves stigmatized um, th throughout throughout their experiences with, with European colonial invaders. So this essay, oh, excuse me, let me go ahead and stop this segment so I can start a new one. So the authors argue that we already have something that we could use as a core assumption, right? The reason that American Indian Studies hasn't seen, isn't seen as its own thing is because it doesn't have a core assumption like all these other paradigms do, like all these other theories do. And so if American Indian Studies had a core assumption, right, then then it could be seen as its own thing within within the academy more generally. They're arguing that such a core assumption already exists um, in the form of what they're calling the peoplehood matrix. Um, and the peoplehood matrix is the result of several, you know, several generations of anthropological studies. Oh, just a quick side note. Um, you know, we think about American Indian studies and indigenous theory, um, you know, a lot of it is in response to anthropology and anthropology um, as opposed to sociology, um, two very similar academic disciplines. We don't have an anthropology department at Virginia Tech, but we do have anthropologists in the sociology department. Lots of other schools have departments of sociology and anthropology. Um, there's not a whole lot of difference. There's a lot of overlap. Anthropology tends to be more qualitative driven. Sociology tends to be more quantitative driven. Anthropology tends to focus on indigenous peoples um, and, and can be archeological as well. Um, and sociology very, and, and focused on like rural areas, smaller communities. Um, indigenous, uh, excuse me, sociology focused, as we've been talking about all semester, on like urban life, on like, you know, the modern and cutting edge aspects of life, what's changing, um, you know, um, you know, capitalism, these sorts of things. And so there's a lot of overlap between these two disciplines, but but they do differ in slight ways. This this paper and 
and a lot of what Linda Smith is talking about, speaking a lot to to the anthropology side of things. Um, and here we've got, you know, generations of anthropological thinkers thinking about, you know, what makes a, a persistent people a persistent people, right? These people who, you know, managed to, to, to live in one area, like uh, the Cherokee, for example, managed to live in an um, area not far from here, really. If we get into the Smoky Mountains, it's going to be the northern edge, about three hours from here. It's going to be about the northern edge of Cherokee territory. Um, living in that area for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, how, how have they managed to, to live in that area? Um, you know, what, what, what kinds of societies develop out, out of um, a group that stays in one place? Um, or that has a set sort of migration pattern, right? We talk about nomadic people. Nomadic people don't wander. Like, they know where they're going, and they go to the same places every year. Um, you know, the, what, what, what goes into the makings of these societies, especially given how different they are, right, how othered they are than, than modern society? Furthermore, from a, from a social Darwinist perspective, um, one of the major points of curiosity is, well, well, this is what like we used to be like. So if we like, this is looking almost like a living history, right? The these primitive people are like living relics of the past. This is what all people used to be like, and then some of us decided to move on to bigger and better things. Um, and so there's a lot of questions as to 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 you know how and why and 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 these 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 strange savages, right? We want to understand their ways. Maybe we can learn a little bit more about ourselves. Um, and so along the way, you know, we have, right, the notions which swirl around the amorphous term ethnic, right, are these, are these, uh, should we consider indigenous peoples as like different ethnicities? Are they their own racial category? Um, as Castile raised in this article on page here on page 11, the notions which swirl around the amorphous term ethnic, ethnic group, ethnic identity, ethnicity, and the like, need to be disassociated from the concept of a people. And, and this is how we're, and this is, you know, one of the directions these anthropologists went, right? Thinking about um, these folks, not in terms of, of um, ethnicity or, or race, but in terms of um, an insular kind of society or a people. Um, and so we end up with this peoplehood matrix, right? Thomas and co-author Tom Holm discussed the concept of peoplehood on numerous times before Thomas's death in 1991. Thomas perceived that the four facts of four factors of peoplehood, uh, which are language, sacred history, religion, and land, were interwoven and dependent on one another, um, emphasizing another aspect of indigenous epistemology that we'll talk about. And so here we have this this model, this peoplehood matrix. And if we look at indigenous societies all over the world, these authors argue. They will have these four things, a sacred history, a sacred language, a sacred territory, and, and what they call a ceremonial cycle, not, not necessarily a religion per se, but a ceremonial cycle that underpins how realities in the other three areas are explained, interpreted, and understood. Here we have a nice diagram on page 13 that kind of shows how this works. Um, it's important to remember that no one of these factors is more important than the other. They all sort of prop up and help define each other. As the authors say here, um, language defines place and vice versa. So place defines language, 
Um, and here we have, you know, that anecdote about the Inuit having like a million words for snow. This is true because it's a big part of the environment in which they live. And so there's very different kinds of snow. Remember, we're not just thinking in terms of binaries here. Um, and I've read this great book about place names in the Western Apache. And 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 um, the Western Apache will give places these very rich descriptive names like um, uh, rock with green water flowing over top under a shaded tree. That'll be like the name of a place. Um, and these places will denote like water sources. They'll denote trails through mountain passes. They'll denote significant sites of like, like ancestral history. Um, and so what you see is a people's identity is, is, is tied up into the land through language and through the ways language names a place. And so then we think about, you know, controversies over, you know, naming Denali Mount McKinley or, you know, vice versa. Um, these, these become political issues and issues about power and subjugation and imperialism, not just about political correctness. Um, Religious ceremonies are usually performed using the language that is familiar within the group. On the other hand, language can be symbolic and ritual language might not have meaning in any other context other than in a particular religious ceremony. Um, and, and Linda gets more into the importance of language and or orality. Um, and so we talk about language here on page 13. History gets a small discussion. Linda gives history a much longer discussion in her book chapter. A group's sacred history is told in the vernacular not only to give each member of the group an understanding of where they come from and by extension who they are, but also to impart to them proper behavior and the ways in which they maintain group cohesion through ritualism and ceremony. Sacred history also entails kinship structures. And so knowing your history is really is really a big component, of course, of of your identity and of yourself, right? To use that, that sociological term we've been using in this course, the capital S, self. Territory, um, and this is a big one. And once again, you know, we haven't really talked about, you know, the climate crisis and global warming and the fact that we are rapidly consuming all of the resources and most of them are going to a few and a small segment of people, um, not to mention the, mass extinction of the world's wildlife and, and general loss of life that we're seeing um, right now, indigenous theory by its nature because of something like the people hidden matrix cannot ignore this. And in fact, it becomes very important for indigenous theory to take into consideration environmental conservation because of the importance of land and territory. Um, you've got to know the land you live on, and more importantly, you've got to make sure that it's healthy, that it's taken care of, if you want to expect to live on it for longer than a generation or two. N not, not to mention, you know, hundreds and thousands of generations, as in the cases of some indigenous communities in the world, like the Aborigines in Australia, like, like San Bushman in, in southern, the Kalahari Desert in southern Africa, like any of the number of tribes that have been living in the Amazon basin um, in, in a very similar way, using a similar language for thousands of years. Um, you've got to know about the land and you've got to use that knowledge to take care of the land. And 
for indigenous folks, uh, um, taking care of the land and environmental conservation is all about maintaining a balance and equilibrium. Um, and, and not just in, in, in all relationships, but especially in your relationship to the land itself. So for example, this is a good example of the way these four aspects of peoplehood, um, including the ceremonial cycle, which I'll get to in a minute, including the ceremonial cycle are all linked together. Um, let's take the Karak people or, or any of a number of, of tribal groups living along the, the living in the Pacific Northwest um, in states like Oregon and Washington up into Alaska, um, all along that rocky Pacific coast there. This is salmon country and these are salmon people, um, you know, multiple words in the language revolving around salmon. Um, there are, you know, salmon spirits and salmon deities. Um, villages are located along salmon rivers. Salmon's going to be a main source of a community's protein. Um, something like like seventy percent of a year's protein is going to be supplied during a salmon run. And so, knowing that cycle and also knowing how to protect that resource becomes a, a interwoven into. Um, the identity of the people themselves. And so what I mean by this is uh, when the salmon first start coming back, you remember they, they spawn and then little eggs and little salmon, they swim out to the ocean and then they live for a little while and then they have to swim back to exactly where they spawned upriver, right? And, and lay their eggs and then, and then they die. Um, and that's where like the bears like to eat the salmon. And um, when the salmon first start coming back, um, you know, pe people are like watching and, and people are waiting for this. And when the salmon first start coming back, everyone's very happy. And, um, we, the first thing we've got to do is start to plan the ceremony to welcome the salmon back because the salmon are coming back. We've got to welcome them back, right? We need to be thankful that they're coming back so that they keep coming back. Um, and so we, we need to take a few days to get ready for this, this ceremony. And, and meanwhile, we can't fish. We can't start fishing until we have this ceremony. We can't start catching the salmon until we thank them for coming back. So what we're going to do is we're going to catch just a couple salmon because we're going to we're going to um, we're going to sacrifice these salmon to to you know for the rest of the salmon, and we're going to have this ceremony. The ceremony is going to take like three or four days. Well, in the time that it takes for all of this to happen, you know, hundreds and thousands of salmon have already the strongest salmon, right? The 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 fastest ones. Um, they've already gone up river and they're going to spawn, they're going to lay their eggs and, and, and ensuring that this next generation is, is going to happen. That next year's salmon run is going to happen only then, only after a few days, only after a bunch of salmon have gone through, only after we've completed this ceremony, thanking the salmon for coming back, can we start fishing and, and take care of ourselves. And, and so there's this balance, right? This equilibrium that is established in it. And it's, and it's a relationship with equality built in, not just equality amongst people, but like equality among species. Um, and this is a novel thing, right? We don't, we don't think about humanity as being like equal to, to animals in, in Western thought. Um, indigenous theory comes a lot closer to that. Than, than, than Western thought does. And, um, and so once again, there, there's these large, these pretty major epistemological differences that we're gonna see play out here. 
So just to reiterate what I was saying about ceremonial cycle, um, let's say here on page 14, humans, especially those who have living relationships with particular territories, observe and know the cycles of natural events, solstices and equinoxes, salmon runs, buffalo calving, the blooming of particular plants, the appearance of certain stars or planets that occur at a certain time and place. Ceremonies most often coincide with seasonal, stellar, planetary, solar, floral, or faunal change that occurs above, below, on the surface, or within a group's territorial range. In short, the ceremonial cycle is linked by way of language and sacred history to a particular environment and ecology. It makes up a group's world, I mean that in a very literal, material sense, and directly affects its worldview in a more abstract way. Um, <clears throat> and so this is a great starting point, I think, you know, if we're thinking about, you know, uh, what would a core assumption of American Indian studies be the fact that all indigenous groups, you know, have these things and, and, and put the same sort of interdependent weight on them and rely on the structure of all four of them being there, um, you know, to derive a sense of identity, then, then that's fine, you know, um, <clears throat> But but what are the what are the wider implications of this? And um, you know, why is this important beyond just a sort of academic utility? Well, because it adds a new political definition that responsible scholars have to take into consideration in looking at international relations, colonialism, warfare, political sociology, domestic politics, or any one of a number of related fields. Um and once again, we go back into this, this, this sort of Western paradigms about what society is and how society progresses over time. Um, this is where the peoplehood matrix disrupts that narrative, disrupts this meta narrative of society progressing towards, you know, some modern, more evolved state. The lowest, and to use Western terminology, the most primitive form of human organization is the band. We're talking about an indigenous group here with its own with its own worldview, with its own traditions and rituals and customs. Right. A band of a primitive band of wanderers is how Western thought might think of it. But really, we're talking about a group with a very complex epistemological um, um, sense of identity. <clears throat> and then, of course, we move from the band to the tribe, once again, still in this realm of the primitive savage. And remember, like. How many of our, our authors, like Durkheim uses the word primitive, Weber uses the word primitive, Marx uses the word primitive, all to refer to indigenous peoples. Essentially, the chiefdom is a tribe, right? Another primitive social organization. Finally, Western scholars have defined the highest and most modern form of socio-political organization as the state. And, and under this under this regime and a nation state is like the United States, like Germany, France, China. These are all nation states. Um, and, and, and the rules, right? The current political rules, right? Which Foucault would say come out, coming out of this discourse, the current political rules are that the only, the only socio-political entities that are allowed to have sovereignty that are allowed to, fully control their own affairs are modern nation states, not indigenous peoples. But yet we can use this peoplehood matrix to argue that, that, that if, if we have peoplehood in the sense that this article is describing, 
then sovereignty is inherent within the structure of this of this uh, matrix. Where is this saying? Yeah, so here on page 17, right? A people united by a common language and having a particular ceremonial cycle, a unique sacred history, and a knowledge of a territory necessarily possesses inherent sovereignty. Nations may come and go, but peoples maintain identity even when undergoing profound cultural change. Furthermore, peoplehood is universally understood and colonizing powers to further their own goals, attempt to strip from indigenous groups each of the four aspects of peoplehood, right? This is how colonialism works, is through uh, systematic targeting and destruction of each of these four aspects of peoplehood. Through the means of territorial dispossession, dispossession right? I'm just going to take your land, right? This is our land now. Assimilation, you can't, I will beat you if you speak your native language, you have to learn English now. Religious conversion, um, that speaks for itself, convert to Christianity or die. Um, this was this was the choice, right, that, that many had um, as, as colonial conquest progressed across the North American continent or outright extermination, which um, happened far more commonly and frequently than we are led to believe in our understanding of American history coming out of public and most private high school educations. Um, I do teach a book called American Holocaust in my American Indian Studies class um, that goes into this in more detail. And it's sort of proof for the, uh, you know, the persistent nature of this model and sort of the inherent sovereignty within it. The authors talk about like all these changes that, that, that um, American Indians have had to um, ad adapt to and, and had to adopt themselves um, in order to avoid extermination, in order to maintain survival, yet still maintain a unique sense of identity and peoplehood. And so here we talk about, you know, syncretic mixture. Um, you know, when when a, when a, a, a tribal group will take something like Christianity and and infuse it with elements of their epistemology, and and um, and create kind of a new way to practice the faith. Um, going back to page seventeen here. Um, speaking on this on this larger notion of epistemology, a Native American knowledge is based largely on the understanding of relationships, the interrelationship between human beings, animals, plants, societies, the cosmos, the spirit world, and the function of other natural, even catastrophic occurrences. And if there's really a goal, right, if, if, if indigenous epistemology is all about sort of this 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 relational way of thinking then then it, and then it emphasizes this this balance right this balance between relationships and of all things um there isn't quite this 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 inherent and embedded power structure within all relationships that Foucault talks about it's more about each 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 party is bringing something different to the table and it's about how each of these relationships represent an example of two forms two forces, um, two people, right, right, um, you know, a person and an environment, a group and an environment, um, what is each party bringing to the table and, and how can we all live together on, on this rock or in this area 
right, on this rock that we call planet Earth. The crucial element in syncretic change is a degree of autonomy. Um, indigenous peoples need to have a degree of control over sort of the elements of like modern culture that are brought in and, and not have these things forced on them. Um, most Native American literature contains a kind of cyclical or at least non-linear non structure. And, and this goes back to um, the sort of balanced notion of indigenous epistemology. History is thought of as a cycle. Um, and, and if we think about, you know, the cycles of the seasons, the cycles of the moon, um, it becomes very easy to think about history in this way. But this is not, however, how Western history is typically conceptualized with like a beginning marching on towards some unknowable, undefinable end. Um, and so once again, these, these differences are, are, are um, you know, once we start to get into these readings, become very apparent between like an indigenous way of thinking about the social world and, and, a, and a Western sort of sociological way to think about the social world. All right, I wanna move now from Tom Holmes' article on peoplehood. Uh, to Linda Smith's article, uh, chapter called Imperialism, History, Writing, and Theory. Um, I wanted to start with home because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to talk about what indigenous theory was. I wanted to talk about, you know, indigenous epistemology and, and indigenous identity first before getting into Linda's critique of it here. Um, but I want to draw your attention to this quote here on the first, you know, on the first page, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Um, I wonder what she means by this. This is a quote by Audre Lorde, a very famous black feminist. And she's talking about how black women um, need to develop their own means of resistance coming out of the black women's community, um, you know, to fight both the, the sexism and the racism and the classism, you know, that, 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 that black women experience. Um, this, quote becomes a metaphor for something like the peoplehood matrix, right? The peoplehood matrix in this metaphor represents a new tool, right? In this metaphor, what is the master's house, right? The master's house is modern civilization. It is Western thought, right? It is everything that we've been studying in this class up to this point. Um, we can't Right, the master's tools, and we can think of um, intellectually, epistemologically, the master's tools in this sense are going to be functionalism. It's going to be symbolic interactionism. It's going to be Marxism. It's going to be post-structuralism. Right, it's going to be second-wave feminism. It's going to be um, coming going back to you know Du Bois thinking about this meta narrative uh, of society. Even Du Bois has elements of this, um, you know, in his race conflict theory. Um, trying to use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, right? This is, this is something that Du Bois is kind of constantly running up against for much of his career. Um, what does this mean in the context of, of our discussion for this week, right? What are the four words in our chapter? Imperialism, history, writing, and theory. These are the master's tools from Linda Smith's perspective, and we need to develop new tools if we want to decolonize the indigenous experience, decolonize indigenous people's lives, perhaps decolonize modern society, um, if we want to take a more abstract sense to it. And so she started going through these four master's tools. And oh, by the way, 
um, I think we can map these four masters tools, imperialism, history, writing, and theory onto the four aspects of peoplehood. Remember, colonialism systematically targeted and went after those four aspects of peoplehood. We have history targeting land and territory, right? History as a Western construct targeting indigenous sacred history. We have writing targeting what? Right, writing, writing down words, having books, ruling texts, right? We've talked about ruling texts. Um, cancels out indigenous language and orality. And that leaves theory as a master's tool and ceremonial cycle. Both are means by which uh, the realities around us, the worlds around us are interpreted and, and, and made sense and, 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 given us a sense of truth to them. Um, and so we have these four masters tools and we can map them on to these four elements of the peoplehood matrix. And, and we can see, um, we can see just how clearly they've worked to dismantle indigenous realities and, and really like negate what, what is one of the only like systems of knowledge production and, um, and one so attuned to environmental conservation that we still have left, right? Um, there's not, there's not a whole, I mean, we could go to East Asia um, and other places, but, but Western thought has become so dominant globally um, that there's just not a lot of places we can go to look outside of it. Um, it seems anymore. And so that's one of the reasons why this week's lesson becomes important in the context of everything else we're talking about in this course. So Linda Smith starts off with this discussion of imperialism. She discusses imperialism um, from like four different like senses, right? There's different ways we could think about the notion of imperialism, kind of like there's different ways, you know, we talked about last week, there's different ways we can think about the idea of power. One is this idea of imperialism as economic expansion as capitalist expansion, we've talked about that, this in the context of Marx. And she quotes here a couple of um, early Marxists in, in Hobson and Lenin. <clears throat> the second use of the concept of imperialism focuses more, um, here I'm on page 22, a second use of the concept of imperialism focuses more upon the exploitation and subjugation of indigenous peoples. Um, although economic explanations might account for why people like Columbus were funded, to explore and discover new sources of wealth, right? That would be the economic expansion part of it. They do not account for the devastating impact of the, on the indigenous peoples <laughs> whose lands were invaded. And so, right, there's this sort of pure economic part of it. And then there's like this, this human toll to it. <laughs> when we think about imperialism, a third is like the spirit of imperialism. And this is going to be much more rooted in like early European theories of enlightenment. Um, it, a spirit and also in the way that like Weber talks about like the spirit of capitalism, right? Imperialism becomes an idea, one to valorize, one to glorify. Is a complex ideology which had widespread cultural, intellectual, and technical expressions. I would say artistic expressions too. Imperialism becomes an integral part of the development of the modern state of science, of ideas, and of the modern human person. 
Um, even think about existentialism, this notion of personal growth, personal expansion, um, you know, very much rooted in this notion of, of, of always growing, right? Um, and this is what imperialism at, the, at its root is all about as well. Um, and then we have a fourth use of the term, which has been generated by writers whose understandings of colonialism and imperialism um, have been coming from outside, coming from the subjugated category, coming from um, the other, right? Although uh, the reach of imperialism into our heads challenges those who belong to colonized communities to understand how this occurred, partly because we perceive a need to decolonize our minds, to recover ourselves, to claim a space in which to develop a sense of authentic humanity. This analysis of imperialism has been referred to more recently in terms of like a post-colonial discourse. The empire writes back or writing from the margins. Um, this is gonna be a more critical take on imperialism and a recognition of the way that imperialism, once again, not just about what happened in the past, not just about economic expansion, <clears throat> not just about it's the spirit of Europe or, or the spirit of expansion coming out and, and, and something that, that motivated European conquest, but something that infects the way that we think, right? Changes our identities on a very basic and, and very contemporary and very urgent level. Um, and so different ways to think about this idea of imperialism. All right, I want to keep this pretty short because I only got about 10 minutes before I think I really start rambling. Um, the big problem, right, with all of these master's tools is that they work um, in, a, in a concerted effort to dehumanize indigenous peoples, devalidate their experiences, and, and that in turn justifies all the terrible things that have been done to them in the name of colonial conquest, in the name of scientific research for the good of mankind. Um, all of this is rooted in enlightenment philosophies and theories about individualism and and um right from the 19th century onward the processes of dehumanization were often hidden behind justifications for imperialism and colonialism which were clothed within and clothed within an ideology of humanism and liberalism and the assertion of moral claims that related to the concept of a civilized man um and so if you weren't civilized in you know, all bets were off in terms of how you'd be treated by the quote-unquote civilized peoples um, in Europe and the United States. So how do history writing and theory, right, writing literally covers over indigenous languages. It, it, it delegitimates the oral traditions found in many indigenous communities. It becomes the source of knowledge and not the oral traditions found in indigenous communities, right? Uh, contracts are in writing, not, you know, spoken anymore, especially under the law in Western societies. So in all these sorts of things, right, writing comes to supplant indigenous language, which is, of course, a major source of identity. Um, in terms of history, Linda has nine points, right, nine critiques of Western history, um, starting here on page 31. You know, the idea that history is a totalizing discourse, that it's one large narrative or chronology, that it's all about development and progression, right? All of these points, I won't go into all of them in detail. If you have questions about them, please let me know. 
Um, other key ideas, these would be like theories, right? Theories of modernity that have um, influenced the way indigenous peoples have been conceptualized and they're and then treated based on those conceptualizations, um, you know, throughout throughout the modern age. And, and, you know, indigenous people have had a very different experience with modernity, right? And for Linda Smith, it's like, hey, we can't even think about the postmodern until we finish sorting out the business of the modern. Um, the racialization of the human subject, right? We've talked about that. Du Bois talks about that. And the social order enabled comparisons to be made between the us of the West and the them of the other. History was a story of people who were regarded as fully human. Um, and we can see this all play out in, in many of the theories that we've talked about already this semester. <sighs> Contested histories. Oh, I like this section here on page 36. Why books are bad, right? Why books are bad. Um, they do not reinforce our value from an indigenous perspective. Books are dangerous. Why? Number one, they do not reinforce our values, actions, customs, culture, and identity. Two, when they tell us only about others, they're saying that we do not exist. Three, they may be writing about us, but are writing things which are untrue. And four, they are writing about us, but saying negative and insensitive things, which tell us that we are not good. Um, Leonie Pihama makes a similar point about film. Um, Leonie Pihama, she came and gave a talk. Um, she's one of Linda's good friends and colleagues. She gave a talk at the class that I took um, with, with them down in New Zealand. And, and she made this point about theory. She's like, look, we as an indigenous people, she's talking specifically about Maori, but all indigenous people, we've always had theory. We just haven't called it that. And so, you know, the, the way that language and, and writing comes to literally paper over, right, these, these, these advancements or these developments that have already happened um, and taking credit for many of them, um, you know, becomes another form of this, this intellectual imperialism. All right. And so she says what we need in order to decolonize the indigenous experience, in order to, to achieve this sort of central mission of, of sorting out the business of the modern as it has been such a disruption in indigenous lives the world over. I mean, let's think about this, right? Um, African-Americans, for example, Linda Smith talks about this here, are the descendants of indigenous peoples from Africa. We have diasporic populations. We have whole nations, whole whole nations of people that have been moved from one place to another, um, disrupting these patterns of indigeneity, which which really represents most of human history. If we if we think about how how um, if we think about our history as a species, how long all of it, how much uh, all of it has been in this sort of indigenous setting. Um, you know, the aberration itself is modernity, and this is something that indigenous theory, you know, seeks to illuminate and, and raise awareness of. Um, and so what we need are these new tools, right? New tools like the Peoplehood Matrix um, and, and others to, to replace the master's tools, right? We need new modes of thinking, in other words, according to Linda Smith, or um, if not new modes of thinking, we need to reclaim and, and rediscover perhaps 
the ones that we've always had. And so um, I will wrap up my podcast here for tonight. I uh, hope I've given you some food for thought for the rest of this week. Um, please mark any passages. Linda's pretty dense, but um, as far as the topic she's covering, it's about as accessible as it gets. Um, please let me know if you have any questions. I'll try to get an announcement up for you. Um, you know, with some videos and your reading reflection questions up by tomorrow. Hope everyone's taking care of themselves. Um, I'll see you later on this week.